Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas on fixing America to bolster national security. If you're a major power in the world, you want to stand for continuity, for a degree of predictability and consistency. So an unwillingness to compromise, I actually think, can be dangerous. It's in your own self-interest to get out there and vote. If not, what you're essentially doing is saying, okay, I'm going to let this other person who I don't know and with whom I may disagree fundamentally, he or she's going to vote and, and determine what happens to me. Uh, why would anybody put themselves in that place? Government is us. What, 20, 25 million people, if you add up everybody who's associated with it? So government is not the other. Government's us. And government touches every aspect of our lives. Richard Haas, thank you for joining us on Chatter. Great to be with you all. It's a great time to talk because you have a new and very different book out. And we, we are going to talk about that. But there's some other questions I'm dying to ask you. <laughs> And some things that you have a unique perspective on that you can inform our listeners about. So you are the, still for a few more months, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. But before that, you held a position that, in my experience, talking with people who haven't been inside the national security bureaucracy enterprise, people either don't know about or they don't understand what it does. And you were there during an absolutely crucial time. So what does the director of policy planning at the State Department do? And describe your time there in the times just before and I believe for a couple of years after 9-11. Yeah, the policy planning staff was a post-World War II creation at the State Department. The first occupant of the chair was also the most illustrious, George Kennan, who was the father of containment, the doctrine that navigate helped the united states navigate the cold war and its relationship with the the soviet union i guess there's probably been 20 or 25 directors of policy planning since you're you're there essentially to serve the secretary of state almost his in-house think tank it's a place where uh often policies are originated uh, you know, the, the rest of the building is so consumed with operational responsibilities uh, that they often don't have time to take a step back and, and think. So the policy planning staff uh, has that luxury uh, to, to suggest new directions. But unlike people, say, at the Council on Foreign Relations or other think tanks on the outside, they're plugged in. You're there every day. You're reading mm -hmm. the intelligence. You're seeing the cable traffic from our mm -hmm. embassies. So you have the advantage of proximity and being an insider and access, but you also have the advantage of being one step removed from hour to hour uh, operational responsibility. So that's that's essentially the the principal role of the job. There's other things as well, speech writing and the rest. But the, I think the real function of the job is to help the is to help the secretary think about new directions. And one other thing I should have mentioned: your second opinion on virtually everything that reaches the secretary, at least in my day, from these operational bureaus, geographic bureaus, functional bureaus, you give them a second opinion. And you say, the, the Bureau on European Affairs said you ought to do X towards Germany. Well, actually, we think that's a terrible idea. Instead, we, we think you ought to do Y, and, and here's why. And that, so you, you're also, in a sense, an in-house check on the, on the rest of the bureaucracy. 
Mm-hmm. I have a, a vague recollection now because it is going back some 20 plus years. So I was uh, serving one year as a desk officer in NEA during that time. And I left not, not long after you started, although that's an unrelated sequence of events, but I, I left and went uh, back to CIA not long after you started in that role. But I was there for the transition between the Clinton administration with Secretary Albright and the Bush administration with Secretary Powell. And I have this vague recollection that the secretaries treated the policy planning staffs somewhat differently. Um, and, and it sounds to me, based on what you've described, that that actually makes sense because it is so centered around the secretary that different secretaries can can choose to use the policy planning staff however they choose in terms of vetting things coming through the bureaucracy, being a, a final word, writing talking points or not. Is that true? Does it vary by secretary? A hundred percent. I think it varies by secretary. It also varies by the person who's sitting in the job. People come into that job with with their different interests, different strengths. Uh, so people and some people in that job have been a general purpose advisor to the secretary, part of his inner circle. There's other people in that job who have been quite removed from the inner circle and have often focused on one or the or another operational matter or have largely done speech writing rather than policy making. It's it's totally discretionary. One of the few jobs in the building, like the counselor job, that is that is totally discretionary. And you were working with an extraordinary set of individuals with deep national security experience uh, during that time at the beginning of the administration. So of course, you had President Bush, who had not been enmeshed in a foreign policy bureaucracy before, but you're there with, you know, almost daily with Dick Cheney, with Condi Rice, Steve Hadley, with Colin Powell, Rich Armitage, um, in many ways, the A-team of national security policy uh, in the last several decades. Did, did you find that that made the job easier or that that made the job harder because they already knew a lot of what a policy planning staff would often bring to the table. There's a lot I could say. Uh, let me say, I don't think it was the best team I ever worked with. The best team I ever worked with was actually under George Bush, the father, under 41. Right. And there you had Jim Baker at Secretary of State. You had mm-hmm. Brent Scowcroft as the National Security Advisor, Bob Gates as his deputy. Dick Cheney was in a different role, the Secretary of Defense. Colin Powell was in a different role, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, I thought that was the best single team uh, I ever worked with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I thought President Bush, the father, was one of the most able presidents uh, of the of the modern era, uh, certainly on foreign policy, but arguably on some other things uh, as well. I did not find the administration of uh, George W. Bush to be quite at the same level. Also, to me, it was somewhat frustrating at the risk of being honest that when you're in the job as the head of policy planning, your real your role is more within the State Department, your formal role. You don't have quite the interagency range that you have in other jobs where you can mix it up. So when I worked for the father, I was at the White House. I had a large role interagency. Uh, I would see the president on a, often on a daily basis. At the State Department, I would see the president much, much, much less frequently. Uh, and my principal avenue formally was trying to influence the Secretary of State. My principal avenue with the rest of the government tended to be more informal. 
So I would see uh, someone like Condoleezza Rice, the national security advisor, say right. once a month we would get together for a meeting or for lunch or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there my influence uh, was really based upon, or my lack of influence, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was much more based upon personal relationships rather than an right. institutional role. So you mentioned earlier that you were walking in the footsteps of George Kennan in the policy planning job. The next job you moved to, which you have held for uh, almost 20 years now, is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And there, you're following in the footsteps of people like John Davis, Alan Dulles, Winston Lord. Uh, Some very impressive people have run the Council on Foreign Relations, but none of them have done it for more than 10 years. And you decided to double that and stick with it for 20 years. What attracted you to CFR in the first place? And what has motivated you to, to stay involved at this intense level for so long? Well, what attracted me to the Council on Foreign Relations there is that it, it is in many ways the country or even the world's preeminent think tank devoted to questions of foreign policy and international relations. It publishes the leading journal in the field, uh, Foreign Affairs. Uh, and this is when I came here 20 years ago, uh, I had just left the uh, George W. Bush administration. I did not see eye to eye with my colleagues about the wisdom of the Iraq war. And I thought it this provided a, an ability to both, uh, you know, to essentially weigh in on big matters of, of foreign policy and what the United States ought to be doing in the world. At a time, we had a lot of discretion, in part because the United States enjoyed such advantages vis-a-vis uh, others. I didn't plan on staying here uh, two decades. I planned on staying here about seven years, which I thought was about the right mm-hmm. uh, period. And I probably spent close to the first seven or eight years thinking about you know, how we could improve what the council did. And I'd like mm-hmm. to think we made, uh, you know, you always build upon your successors. I'd like to think we improved uh, everything from the websites to uh, the studies program to the meetings program, whatever. When I decided to re-up and stay for a lot longer, uh, we introduced some major changes at the council, not just improving what existed, but introducing some new, a new mission, which was essentially uh, an educational mission. And the whole idea was rather than simply being a resource as important as it is for members or for the foreign policy establishment, for those who had already opted in to the foreign policy conversation, we decide we would try to become a, an educator of the millions and millions of Americans who were not part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. So we targeted uh, students at the high school and college level. We uh, targeted uh, local journalists. We targeted state and local officials. We, we targeted the, the religious and congregational leaders, people who gave uh, you know, the sermons every week. And the whole idea was to be a much broader resource. We've now become probably the leading educator in the country about the world. We have an entire curriculum that we've developed here that's up online called World 101. We've got dozens and dozens of simulations based upon the uh, National Security Council or the uh, or the UN. We've, we've created a, a game for middle schoolers with iCivics to teach younger people about the uh, world. On our website, we've introduced all sorts of uh, fundamental, uh, we call them explainer material. So again, the whole idea is to be an educator in the largest sense of the world. And that really got me interested. Uh, I feel excited about how we've continued to do what you would expect the Council on Foreign Relations to do, hold meetings, write articles, write books, uh, and the like. 
and we've taken on a, a much larger uh, educational role. So that's really what kept me here. And then the last few years, I, I was actually, once that was all said, I was thinking of moving on, then COVID happened. And I thought that as the CEO of this institution, I had an obligation to help us, help steer us through this. Uh, we, we meet all the time. Well, in COVID, you couldn't meet. And the whole question was, uh, what would we do? And I was worried about what it would mean for us. And we obviously, like everybody else, jumped onto Zoom. And we created a community that was virtual rather than in person. And we got through it in very good shape. We're financially stronger than ever. Our membership is larger and more diverse and more active. So we, we weathered the storm. But I felt an obligation to, to get us through that which brings me up to, uh, to where I am now, which is essentially uh, four months away from, uh, from leaving what, what has been an extraordinary experience for me. And in the course of those 20 years, you've had some momentous developments on the world stage, but one of them, perhaps the, the largest, uh, has to be the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a, a major war in Europe for the first time in what I would call modern history. Um, this is a huge issue and one that you've you've described before in a few places as um, really two wars, that it's the Russian war against the people in the cities of Ukraine and the Ukrainian war against the Russian army. At least that's how you characterized it early in the conflict. And now that we're just past a, a year into the conflict, I'm wondering if you still think of it that way and how these kind of dual reality of the war has evolved during the past few months? Well, two reactions. I do think it was an extraordinarily or is an extraordinarily large historic development. If you look at the last 20 years, one can think of you know post 9-11, uh, post the beginning of the Iraq war, but we had the entire trajectory of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. We had the 2007-8 uh, economic crisis. We had the Arab Spring uh, we had the uh, deterioration in many ways of U.S.-Chinese relations. You know, it's, a, it's a long list of developments. But the idea that you could have this type of a blatant, unprovoked war between countries in Europe, the part of the world we thought that had most put the, the past behind it, it's quite extraordinary. I think it's one of the reasons that so many people had trouble imagining it or predicting it even when the evidence began to mount that something was about to happen. Indeed, there was a large body of work in the field suggesting that wars between countries was obsolete. Didn't make sense. Wasn't going to happen anymore. Territory didn't matter. Well, clearly nobody translated that work into Russian. Or if they did, Vladimir Putin didn't get around to reading it. So it is you know, a big, big development. And it's one that has repercussions, not just simply for Europe, which is still a quarter of the world's economy, and the rest, but also for the rest of the world, because it, it's a demonstration that uh, that history did not end with the end of the Cold War. What you're referring to, the idea of two wars, I still think that's largely the case, that the, the Ukrainian forces are not attacking, essentially, Russian territory. They're attacking Russian forces occupying Ukrainian territory. Mm -hmm. And they're largely attacking just that, Russian military forces. Russia is, to some extent, engaging the Ukrainian military, but their principal weapon has been indiscriminate targeting of Ukrainian society, the Ukrainian right. economy. So I still think you largely have two wars coexisting. There obviously there is an element where the armies are uh, this friction or engagement between the armies uh, themselves. 
In the United States, I think it's very easy to get the impression that everyone recognizes that uh, Russia is wrong and what they're doing is opposed by everyone because those are the voices we're, we're hearing most loudly here. Those are the voices our closest allies are putting forth. Um, there are some very strong words and actions coming out of everyone from the Baltic states um, to the uh, other parts of Europe. But I think a lot of Americans are somewhat blind to the fact that much of the world is at minimum staying out of this one. And in the case of uh, China, um, trying to take advantage of it to perhaps, maybe it's too strong to say that they're trying to make Russia into a vassal state, but they're certainly taking advantage of the Russian situation. And it's not as clear cut as it often appears in the United States. And I'd like your, your take on that, both from the point of view of education, as you talked about, one of CFR's mission is to educate people about the world. And it's not all about what we think that other countries have agency and action also. But then also whether you see that strategic dynamic going that way, that in fact, Russia is going to have, if not allies, at least quite powerful friends not opposed to what they are doing in Ukraine. Let's, let's take them in turn. Uh, I think you're right uh, that a lot of the world is sitting it out. There were some extraordinary quotes the other day I read. I think it was from Brazil, from Lula, the new leader, uh, essentially saying, this is not our war. We're, we're in favor of peace, as though that's somehow a foreign policy. The, uh, but yeah, a lot of the world is sitting it out, in some cases because it's far away in many cases, more cynically, either it's an opportunity to buy oil at a discount. We see that happening in places like uh, India. Or also in the case of India, Russia is an important provider of arms. In other cases, uh, people just essentially are going about their, their business and want to maintain good relations with Russia, China, uh, even countries that are very close to the United States, like Israel, have been... Uh, quite, shall we say, reluctant to, to choose sides. I think the, the Biden administration has exacerbated the problem by often framing this around the idea that this is a war for democracy against authoritarianism. Well, as uh, I expect everybody knows, a big chunk of the world is not democratic. It's not a terribly appealing argument. I think they would be much wiser to frame this as a, a war about the principle the territory ought not to be acquired by force. A lot of the world, or most of the world, I would think, is much more likely to get behind the notion they don't like countries getting invaded because they could be next. That might be a slightly more appealing uh, theme than, than, than promoting democracy. I could go on on that and just say this is probably also not the best moment for the United States to be championing itself hmm. as the, uh, the great exemplar of democracy, given some of the issues uh, and realities that are that are obviously taking place here. So, uh, but but uh, uh, your, your basic point's 100% right, that a lot of the world is sitting this out. This is basically an American-European, essentially a transatlantic mm -hmm. uh, war fought against Russia and the backers of Russia. Uh, it's an interesting question about China. We'll turn to that in a second, but also some others, or I'd say are partial backers in the sense that they are uh, violating sanctions. They are not joining in the sanctions against Russia. Uh, China is very interesting here. This all takes place against the backdrop of a dramatically worsened U.S.-China relationship. And I think that's been the, the trend of history now for, for quite a while. 
And what we're seeing is the Chinese, uh, just when the war broke out a year ago, you saw the Chinese and Russia sign an agreement, the so-called No Limits Friendship Agreement. I think the Chinese did so, Xi Jinping did so, under the expectation that that Vladimir Putin probably uh, uh, argued to him that this was going to be a cakewalk. China thought that uh, to associate itself so directly with Putin only had upside, had no downside. Needless to say, uh, things haven't quite worked out that way. But China and Xi Jinping invested its prestige. Xi Jinping is not the kind of guy who likes to uh, admit mistakes. Also, possible, as you say, in the long run, they see Russia as a kind of gas station and provider of minerals, got a lot of territory. I also think China doesn't mind, to be cynical, the idea that uh, the United States and Europe are diverted by this war. American military readiness is getting uh, much worsened as we deplete our stocks of uh, equipment and, and, and ammunition. Indeed, I'm worried that China will increasingly decide to support Russia enough so that Russia does not lose this war. China doesn't want to see its partner lose. Again, may enjoy the fact that the United States is is tied down, is depleting uh, it, its military stocks, is spending a lot of, of, of money on this, and China may calculate, what the hell? We uh, Relations are so bad with the United States, they can't get much worse. And relations are so bad with the United States, even if we show a degree of restraint, we're not going to be rewarded with them because Democrats and Republicans are essentially competing for who can be tougher on China. So I think for lots of reasons, the, the Chinese are increasingly throwing in their lot with Russia. And one of the consequences of that is it adds to the argument that this is likely to be a long war, that Russia will be able to stay in the, in the fight for a long time. Uh, and so you have, if you have Russia increasingly supported by China, Iran and others, and you had Ukrainian supported by the United States and Europe, that's a recipe for a long war. Yeah, I, I fear the the phrase frozen conflict may end up applying here to the extent that the West continues arming Ukraine enough that Russia simply can't overtake the very large territory. And yet China keeps supplying Russia with the, the material to, to pursue the conflict. Well, quite possibly. What you suggest is quite possibly like, I'm not confident that we couldn't have a similar conversation a year from now or two years from now. Indeed, Mr. Putin's entire strategy is to play for time hoping that Western resolve fades and China could help give Mr. Putin the capacity to play for time. One other strategic issue, one of, one of the benefits of the policy planning staff, but being at CFR and not being uh, in a line desk office is you're able to take a step back and think strategically here. Um, and I'm going to put out a proposition that, that may be controversial, but I'll propose that there's been a missed strategic opportunity for the United States with India. At a time when cooperation with India has expanded on multiple fronts, technology, cooperation, the so-called quad grouping with Australia and Japan, um, that's, that's definitely movement. I'll grant that. Mm -hmm. But there was an opportunity with the Russian invasion of Ukraine to say to India, look, those dynamics that you just mentioned, whether it's supporting democracy, India has a check mark, whether it's supporting the right to territorial integrity. India feels strongly about that vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, India is, in a sense, a more natural ally on those fronts. And if the United States could have stepped in and said to Indian leadership, look, 
here's an opportunity to break yourself of the Russian arms machine, which in the long term will be unreliable. The United States will help you and we will help ensure access to the energy needs you have. In a sense, a bold diplomatic move to elevate the relationship with India. Do you think that's a reasonable proposition that there was an opportunity missed here on that strategic level? In a word, no. Uh, sorry to puncture your, your balloon there. That's why I asked. Uh, no, I, I believe India is too wedded to a tradition of the fancy word would be non-alignment. The less fancy word would be strategic hedging to so closely affiliate with the United States and the West. India is increasingly in a liberal democracy. So I don't think it's particularly persuaded by arguments that are democracy related. You can't, as you know, turn on a dime or flick a switch in terms of military reliance. The Indian-Russian military relationship is has been going on for so long and so deep and wide that it'll be uh, the process of weaning India from Russia, which I think is something we should be open to if India will allow us to do it. And uh, should it's already underway, but India probably won't play ball. If you remember... We had the breakthrough on uh, no longer no longer sanctioning India because of its nuclear program. What do they do? They go buy planes from Europe rather than the United States. India is worried about China on its border, but India is also worried about China on its border. Doesn't want to do things to offend uh, China. So no, I'm uh, look. I've worked hard to improve U.S. relations with India, and I think over the last what 25, 30 years, we've made a lot of progress. But I'm also a realist on this. And I'm probably at the more, uh, what's the word, modest end of the debate about what to expect from India. I don't, I don't see the potential for strategic alignment, much less alliance or anything like that with India. I think we're, we will have degrees of cooperation, but also inevitable frustration. Well, I know you, you have uh, thoughts on just about any area in the world and United States interests as they relate to them. But I find it fascinating that recently you've determined that what keeps you up at night when it comes to American foreign policy and national security writ large is not a threat from abroad, but a threat from within. And this has prompted you to devote your most recent attention to what became a book project, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. I'd like to talk a little more about that origin story. Um, when was it that your thinking started to gel around the idea that while there are serious and, and robust national security threats from abroad, that the threat from within is something that national security practitioners need to turn their eye to as well? It was a few years ago. And as <clears throat> what you said suggests, it wasn't something I had long planned. Uh, I'd been thinking a little bit about this years before. One of my previous books was called Foreign Policy Begins at Home. But that was really more about issues like immigration, education. It was about the sources of American strength. Right. And there was only one chapter on our political difficulties. This is something qualitatively different. This is about the internal threat to, to American democracy. And I had been thinking about it for some time. What originally got me going was, particularly during the Trump years, what I saw as the erosion of certain norms uh, in the in the United States and the increasing difficulty of getting things done along party lines, crossing parties, party lines. And then January 6th, shall we say, was something of a accelerator or galvanizer, whatever word you want to uh, 
using, you know, then, uh, so that reinforced my sense that something was severely amiss. And even years ago, I had begun to look at the whole, what I called a uh, civics deficit in this country mm-hmm. that we essentially don't teach civics mm-hmm. or if we teach it, we don't teach it well and we don't require it. So you can go to almost any school in America, almost any college or university. And while it's offered there at 95% of those universities or more, you can, if you navigate those course distribution requirements, right, you can avoid taking any course in civics. Hmm. So I've been thinking about this for a, um, for quite a while. It, 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 it came together. And for me, the aha moment was really two things. One is uh, when I'd speak about, you know, I, I out, I, I'm out speaking all the time. One is uh, I saw the reaction in the room when I started talking about these issues. Hmm. And there was a, you know, normally when I talk about foreign policy, you know, as you know, you know sometimes the, glide, the, the eyes glaze over. I can, I, I can get overly academic. But when I mentioned civics, there was a, a certain energy in the room. People, hmm. knew, people glommed onto that. And then secondly, when I, I, I invariably, I'm, I'm asked the question after I finish whatever opening remarks I make, someone will ask, as, you know, using your words, what keeps you up at night? And they say, is it China or Russia, you know, what have you, North Korea or climate change, what have you? And I say, yeah, those are all problems. I get it. Those all worry me. They're all legit concerns. But what really worries me is us. And, you know, history suggests if we have sufficient focus and unity and resources, we can deal with our external challenges. We did pretty well in World War II. We did pretty well in the Cold War and so forth. But if we don't have that kind of unity or focus, then we're in real trouble. Hmm. And so that's why I came around to the idea that this is basic. And then I don't know how you, you know, how you operate, but when I write, I take a lot of walks and I'd either walk here in the city around central park, or we have a place upstate in New York and I, I'd walk around there. And, uh, I have a, appropriately enough. I have a dog named Kenan. You'll, you'll like that. Uh, <laughs> as you would think the former head of the policy planning right. staff would have. And was part of a plot by my kids to get me to have a dog as they knew if I could name it, I would well be played. more likely to, yeah, I was totally played and it worked. So I would take long walks with Kenan and I wouldn't say he was a great conversationalist, but he, he left me alone to my thoughts and I began to put together the arguments of this book. Well, I do want to talk through the idea of obligations and, and discuss each one of them that you propose, because as a collection, they're quite impressive but let's let's lay the foundation first for why you assess we've had a democratic decline in the US recently the factors that go into that among those you've mentioned is a a loss of a common identity um, the the idea that there's something that unites all of us and I, and I'd like you to talk through that a little bit because that's something that I think a lot of people will nod their heads and agree. Yeah, I guess that's true, but they can't quite put their hands around the why um, of that in the United States more recently than than has always been true. My sense is there's several whys. One we've already alluded to that we don't teach our history and our, our narrative very well. Yeah. No one's born understanding why democracy matters, is valuable, where it comes from how it's performed, what it takes to sustain it. And the fact that we haven't taught it or haven't required that people study it, I think is one reason. Uh, 
we no longer have uh, nearly as many common experiences. If you know, when you go back to the literature of World War II and the Greatest mm-hmm. Generation, and even subsequently things like the draft, right? We don't have anything like that anymore. Mm-hmm. We have the all volunteer force. Media has really changed. I don't know how old you are. I know how old I am. But when I grew up, uh, it was an America of three networks. And people would watch the nightly news, Walter Cronkite or Huntley Brinkley or whatever. And now we li- now we no longer live in a world of broadcasting. We live in a world of narrowcasting. And it's cable or Sirius radio or AM or FM radio or, or social media. So rather than having common experience, we increasingly have uncommon experiences. Uh, you know, we, it's, we're almost all operating our, in our own ecosystem defined by geography or class. Educational attainment turns out to be a really strong mm-hmm. indicator, gender, race, religion, uh, you name it. So, you know, this is a, you know, we the people are increasingly no longer a we. Uh, very, very uh, separate. So, you know, I, uh, lots of other things as well. The way we fund our politics, parties have become weaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, it, it, just a long, long list of, of things that have brought us to, to where we are. And again, the question then is, uh, you know, what do we do about it? Because it's pretty clear to me that these forces aren't going away and they're not going to sort themselves out. Right, right. And as as a realist, you, you point out, it's not that we can change our institutions overnight to, to adjust to the fact that democracy is just hard. And, and it's hard when you found a democracy and you have, what, 3 million people involved. Um, now we have 330 million people involved and the institutions aren't probably ideal for that, but our system makes it hard to create new institutions. So therefore we need to talk more about obligations than rights. Talk about that difference. Talk about, everybody understands, I think, the the Bill of Rights and the idea of what the government can and cannot do. There's positives and negatives in, in the first 10 amendments. But what, what what's the obligations side? And how do you picture that working with these, these rights as enumerated in the Constitution? Let me get to your question, but you mentioned one or two things that I think is important. We just Mm-hmm. walk our way through. I mean, right, this was a country when we were founded nearly two and a half centuries ago of 3 million people. As you say, we're now 333 million people. And for, not surprisingly, there's lots of ways in which this this political system doesn't work. We've only had 27 amendments to the Constitution, and the 10 were pretty immediate because it was at the that was part of the deal that was part of the original one of the original compromises several states said we'll only ratify the new constitution if you give us a bill of rights we've come out of the articles of confederation which by the way when you i recommend that people reread them it was a real education for me they are that the idea that anyone thought that could make that could constitute a government is beyond me they are (laughs) feckless is the word that comes to mind and but people were worried about a strong executive, not surprisingly, because they had just, you know, we just fought a war of independence. So the bargain was, okay, you can have this stronger government, federal government, but only if you build in protections. Uh, hence the, uh, the, the, the Bill of Rights. And rights are obviously central to not just American democracy, but 
uh, but any democracy. It's been though hard to, you know, the, the founders purposefully made it difficult to amend the Constitution. We've only had 17 additional amendments over this uh, time. Now, a lot of people have come up with all sorts of plausible, even admirable ideas, but increasingly you can't get them through. So, yeah, I'm almost tired. I don't mean to be disrespectful of reading reports and commissions of 86 ideas to improve American democracy, to stop this gerrymandering or, you know, what, what have you. But you're not going to get them through. Yeah. The idea that you're going to totally change how we, you know, two senators from every state. OK, so you have California with the population of now 20 states, but it only has 120th the representation in the Senate. That may be true. That may be deeply flawed. It may be inconsistent with one man, one person, one vote, but it ain't going to change. So to me, the question was, okay, given those realities, how do we create an environment where you have a chance for needed change to take place? And that to me was moving away from a narrow rights-based understanding that we needed to think about what we owed one another, mm-hmm. what we owed the country, and also a rights alone approach to democracy increasingly puts you at loggerheads. Uh, so, okay, you believe that a woman has an absolute right to choose. The guy next door, the woman next door says, uh, no, the rights of the unborn are absolute. Well, what do you do then? Right. Compromise is hard then. Compromise is hard. Supreme, you know, we can have compromise, but for many people, compromise is unacceptable. These are existential philosophical questions. So either you have gridlock or one side or the other wins, in which case the other side feels totally outside the political process, or you have violence. So again, a a rights-based approach to democracy, I think, sows the seeds of its own demise. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been trying to think of, okay, how do we, yes, continue our respect for rights, but understand that rights alone is not adequate, and that how do we... how do we develop a a balance between rights and obligations? And then for me, that led to, okay, well then what are the obligations? How does one, how does one think about them? And that's what, that again is what uh, led to what we're talking about. And the obligations then are not necessarily and, and probably not at all matters of, of statute. These are matters of social reinforcement matters um, of, like you said, civics education of, faith leaders, of community leaders, basically building up a network of norms around these obligations, right? Couldn't have said it better myself, 100%. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure you did say it better in the, in the book, but <laughs> having, having read it, I've incorporated some of the thinking behind it. No, that's generous. Uh, no, and, and again, obligations are things you should or ought to, ought to do rather than must do. We, we have laws, but laws can never anticipate everything. Mm-hmm. That's where norms come in. That's where behaviors come in. That's where attitudes uh, come in. Laws, laws are fixed. They're somewhat brittle. They can't anticipate every conceivable situation. So we need the cushion, mm. the extra dimension of, 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 of obligations. That's the only way, again, I think a democracy mm. ultimately survives. Right. Well, let's walk through these obligations and uh, Important to note that you don't say these are the only obligations, that there could be others that are important and we can uh, debate those. And some people may not agree with the top 10 importance of all of these, but your top 10 starts with being informed. Mm -hmm. So tell us, what is an informed citizenry and why is it so important? 
10 second aside, what you say is exactly right. Uh, I'm not saying I, my 10 are the only 10. Right. I'm not saying they're the right 10. I would love to have a conversation because I'm interested in obligations. So if people say, how about numbers 11 and 12? Funnily enough, the Bill of Rights was originally 12. <laughs> There's a tradition here. <laughs> I often think of that movie where, was it, Mel go. Brooks comes down and he's carrying all the tablets. And he, commandments. <laughs> he drops he drops a tablet and five five commandments go by the wayside. Right. Uh, so anyhow, yeah, a little bit of that in our, in our history. But uh, look, you're right. Being informed, I made the first, not by accident. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan once said, "It's it's. I obviously support patriotism, but it's essential that it be an informed patriotism." Right. And and we have a representative democracy. Only by being informed can we hold those who are appointed or elected accountable. Can we make judgments as to what's in the country's interest, even what's in our own interest? Mm-hmm. So it turns out that being informed is the predicate for so much else. People. Now, you could almost argue at the risk of being more political than I'm comfortable often being. It came up, though, in a conversation I had a few months ago, about I mean, a few weeks ago, where someone said um, the people on January 6th, they thought of themselves as patriots. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're right. But they weren't informed patriots. If they were informed patriots, they would have understood what they were doing was inconsistent with the DNA of this country. And that's why, again, I think information is the, the predicate. It's the foundation of all else. And the pushback that I know you've received on multiple fronts over the years is a pushback that'll come on this, which is, and I'll try to characterize an argument that I don't agree with, but I'll be fair, which is, okay, Richard, you're telling us that we just need to be better informed, but the actual so-called experts out there, the ones who were most informed about Iraqi WMD got it wrong. The experts that were most informed from 20 years of experience in Afghanistan about the stability of the Afghan government, if we pulled out, were wrong. Why, why should we trust in experts? And why should we even try to become close to experts by making ourselves better informed when the experts get it wrong so often? I know you have counter arguments to that, and I want to hear them. <laughs> well, sure. Uh, that's a fair point. But then, if you don't want to be at the mercy of so-called experts, how, how can you challenge them if you're not informed? So if you're hearing stuff from experts, uh, how do you say, well, does that make sense? Is that really in the country's interest? Is that really in my interest? What are the costs of that? Uh, what, is, what is the likelihood of success? What is the likelihood of failure? What would be the consequences of failure? What are the alternatives? The only way I know to look out for your own or to your country's uh, welfare is to be in a position to, to question, to challenge, to not to simply, not to simply accept because you're hundred percent right. Experts get it wrong all the time. We're now living with an inflation that I would argue the experts got the economy wrong. We, we made all sorts of mistakes. 2007, eight, again, the economic experts got it dead wrong and we paid, uh, we paid, you know, a, a big price, Iraq, Afghanistan, any number of uh, times for sure. And so the question then is how do citizens, how, how do you know who to vote for? How do you know who to put into office to make all sorts of decisions while you go about your job and your life? How, you've got to be informed or you're at the mercy of events or others who are going to jump into the political arena and not take your views into account. And is there something to be said for the argument that 
in cases like Iraq WMD, I'll put out there that, yeah, it was it was a wrong judgment in in a case of high uncertainty and a number of other you know psychological dynamics and others, and that's not the same as as fundamentally not being informed and saying. I'm just going to go with raw belief rather than finding out the facts. Is there a difference there? Absolutely. Uh, look, I was involved at the time in government. It's where we began the conversation. I, I thought the Iraqis had weapons of mass destruction. Now, knowing that, or believing that, sorry, believing that, I still oppose going to war with Iraq. That was a judgment call I made. I said, even if they do have weapons of mass destruction, I still believe we have better options than going to war. But I, I fully thought they, they had weapons of mass destruction. The administration was not lying. Right. Experts still simply got along. You know the arguments. I mean, a little yeah. bit like the doctor who's a specialist in a certain disease, everything we saw, we had confirmation bias. We were persuaded that Saddam was not cooperating with the inspectors because he was hiding the fact that he had weapons. Mm. Turns out he wasn't cooperating with inspectors because he was hiding the fact he didn't have weapons. <laughs> so to me, it's such a revealing episode. I've learned something from that. It's actually it's a bit of an aside. It's um, to be really, really wary of assumptions, mm -hmm. to drill down and basically just be sure uh, about your because your assumptions turn out to be the foundation stones of arguments. And it, it, to me, that was an, uh, a necessary but expensive, expensive uh, lesson. But yeah, experts uh, are going to get it wrong, but it doesn't mean that we can do without expertise. Because also, by the way, experts get it right a lot of the time as well. Yeah. And I will say my old business as an intelligence analyst at, at CIA, no one thought more about their thinking than intelligence analysts. And that went up a notch after the Iraq WMD thing, because yes, we had been aware of assumptions and trying to correct for them. But after that, it became a whole rigorous part of tradecraft is to, to learn lessons from mistakes as well as successes when it comes to predicting an uncertainty. And I'd like to think that being informed is not just about facts, but it's being informed about your own cognitive processes make you a better thinker. Just two reactions to that, though. It's a bit of a detour. One is the best book I know about such questions is a book called Thinking in Time. Yeah. The Uses of History Classic. for Decision Makers by Dick Neustadt and Ernie May. Because yeah. yeah. mm -hmm. it, what it does is it gets you to identify and then ask yourself questions about your assumptions. Right. And then you all at the agency... Uh, instituted this whole red cell process where you yep. basically you stood up a team of mm -hmm. people who basically said, let's do this outside in or inside out. Let's mm -hmm. totally stand every assumption on its head. I used mm -hmm. to love reading that. Uh, <laughs> they were popular products. They were popular products. And they even if they let they turned out at the end of the day not to be, quote unquote, right or accurate, the thought exercise was incredibly valuable. Because right. again, it, it, it forced you to be careful mm. about the, the building blocks of your argument. And they could raise the what if questions that standard analytic products have a hard time doing because either there isn't enough evidence or because it's a very unlikely scenario with high impact. So we found, you know, when I was taking the PDB downtown and briefing it, we would supplement that with the red cell products and almost every day, I don't want to say popular, that's the wrong word for intelligence documents of any kind, but they, they got a better reception from readers than the traditional products because they had a little bit more freedom, a little bit more room to breathe. 
Yeah. Let's turn to your second obligation, um, which builds on the first. Being informed enables people to then be involved within the, the democratic experiment that we're in. Um, we don't have a good track record in this, honestly. When it comes to even something as simple as voting, we don't really do so well in just showing up and and voting for representatives, much less educating others on issues or working for a party or candidate or assisting the board of elections and contributing. Just voting is hard. So this obligation seems like it's a bit of a heavy lift. What motivations will citizens have to get more involved? Well, unfortunately, you're right. I mean, even these recent midterms, which arguably were among the most important in modern history, more than half of eligible voters didn't didn't vote. And while in some cases, you know, voting can be difficult, your employer won't give you time off, you can't get child care, there aren't enough polling stations in your community, whatever, I understand that the lion's share of the people who didn't vote didn't vote. Uh, they didn't bother to vote for whatever reason. They didn't think their vote mattered. They didn't see any difference between the uh, candidates. They they couldn't be bothered to get informed so they could understand the, the stakes and uh, the differences. And you're right. We, we do poorly compared to many other democracies. It's ironic, given that so much of our foreign policy is about supporting the right to vote for others. We can't be bothered to do it ourselves. Mm. Kind of ironic, given our history, mm. uh, you know, the Revolutionary War and that. But there you... Uh, there you have it. So yeah, we can make it easier and so forth. But I think the real thing is to persuade people, in, again, it's the importance of civics and the rest, about the value of voting. About uh, It does make a difference. I mean, think about how government affects our lives. We're going to have a decision made in the next couple of months about the debt ceiling. That will have tremendous economic consequences for every American. Matters of war and peace obviously have tremendous consequences. What we do or don't do at the border tremendous consequences for, for life in the United States or lo- whether local issues as well about crime. You know, I live in New York. Decisions about bail reform all have tremendous consequences. So, and you know, we've had enough close elections where small numbers of people can have an outsized impact. So, so my view is, uh, again, it's in your own self-interest to, to get out there and vote. If not, what you're essentially doing is saying, okay, I'm going to let this other person who I don't know and with whom I may disagree fundamentally, he or she is going to vote and, and determine what what happens to me. Uh, why would anybody put themselves in that place? So I, you know, I, I just think we, we need to do a much better job of making it easier to vote. Employers can help there and so forth. But also, I think of making the case that, that voting counts and that what governments do count. Government affects our lives in fundamental ways. Absolutely. One one point on this, I'm wondering if you see it from an obligation point of view, do you think it makes a difference whether voters do what, what I certainly learned in school, which is you look at the two candidates and you look at their views on a range of issues. Like you said, maybe it's bail reform and it's the debt ceiling and it's foreign policy and it's social policy and you rack and stack them and you decide which one works best for you on the most issues and you vote. Does it matter for you when it comes to this obligation, that that citizens are like that? Or is it okay if they are single issue voters, as long as they get involved based on that single issue that they care about the most? It's an interesting question. Uh, I don't much like single issue voting, though I am I did it this election, and I'll explain it in a second. 
Uh, it was a, an interesting moment. Mm-hmm. But because again, there's a whole range of things. The people you're putting into positions of authority get a chance to make all sorts of decisions on multiple issues. That said, I can respect that people feel so, so strongly about guns, either having access to them or constraining it, or about abortion, or during the time of Vietnam, about Vietnam. You know, go down the list. I understand the power of and you single issue, and you'd say, yeah, I know I've got a lot of considerations, but this one issue matters so much for me. I am going to choose a candidate based upon that issue alone, even if I disagree on 86 other things. I had that issue this time. Uh, here it was in November, and I went to the polls, and here, you know, I've, I, I had finished writing this book. It was going to come out in a few months. And I, I basically say that democracy comes first. So I was, <laughs> I can still remember the moment. So I walk yeah. into that New York voting thing mm-hmm. and you have to fill out the forms with your pencil, fill its color in the circle. And I had a choice between two candidates for one position, one of whom I agreed with on probably 80 to 90% of the issues, mm-hmm. but this individual was an election denier. Oh, And the other candidate yeah. was someone who I disagreed with on 80% of the uh, policies, in some cases very strongly, but this individual was not an election denier. Mm-hmm. And I had to uh, decide if I was going to walk the walk that I had been talking. And I did, but it was not easy. It was right. not easy. It's not easy, but the the mantra I've used is, you know, I want to get back to the time when we can argue about marginal tax rates or the fine points of foreign policy. That's fine. But if you don't have a functioning representative democracy, you're not going to have those policy debates. So you have to get that right first. 100%. That was that was the way I rationalized it and explained it to myself. But that yeah. has the virtue of being true. That builds into your third obligation, which is being willing to, staying open to the art of compromise. Um, compromise feels a lot different now than it did even a short time ago. Now it sounds like a surrender, a giving in. Um, but it used to be if not honored, at least respected. And you mentioned in your book uh, a good quote from Henry Clay from the 1800s saying that all legislation, all government, all society is founded upon the principle of mutual concession. When I, I wrote a bit about Henry Clay in my second book and called him you know, one of the, the best presidents we never had because he kept running and kept running and never quite got there. And Part of it, I think, is due to the fact that he was such a compromiser. He got the nickname, the Great Compromiser, for solution after solution to problems that kept the country going. But even though that was probably meant to be an honorific, being known as the person who is always willing to give something up to get a deal done does have a downside because Americans tend to like winners. They don't necessarily value people who give things away to opponents because it keeps the game going longer. But I wonder if I was unfair about that because Ronald Reagan had a very similar point of view, and yet he is revered by many people as being such a strong leader, even though he artfully talked about the art of compromise. Do you think we can get back to a place where compromise is seen as at least a good thing, if not the highest good, instead of being a dirty word? I sure hope so. Uh, without it, uh, we ain't going to get much done. You know, the other president I'd, I'd mention here is John F. Kennedy. It's interesting in Profiles and Courage, several of the profiles were of senators who embraced compromise. 
when compromise was a controversial thing to uh, to do. So it, it turns out you really can't get a lot done. Indeed, you often don't want to get a lot done without compromise because if there's no compromise and you simply impose your preferences, those who are then defeated or left out, either when they get their chance of power, are going to reverse things. And that's a bad way to run a railroad, particularly in matters of foreign policy, but even here domestically, or in some cases, they'll feel so shut out of things, they may either get out of the political process or turn to violence. So I think compromise is uh, usually right. It's usually necessary. Not always. There, there, there are rare moments of, 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 of high principle, and I, I understand that. But by and large, yes, compromise is necessary. Uh, we never would have gotten the Constitution written without it. Uh, when we refused to compromise in the middle of the 19th century, we ended up with the Civil War. Um, so, yeah, I think compromise is it's often necessary and often it's desirable because you have to think about well, what happens if I don't compromise? And you've got to be persuaded that's a preferable outcome. In most cases, it is not a preferable outcome. Better to get, again, you know, the, the, all the cliches kick in here, David. But, you know, a, a half a loaf is better than none. And I, I think in most instances, that's true. And it has manifested itself in foreign policy across 200 years. Objectively, uh, there, there, there's compromise over foreign policy budgets and defense budgets and aid budgets and war powers and everything that involves national security is is a compromise of some level, even if only at the large sense of security versus liberty kind of issues. So of course, compromise is part of it. And to hear the very act of compromise denigrated and disrespected makes it harder to do all kinds of policy, right? Absolutely. Plus, it not only makes it hard to get anything done, it also introduces the likelihood of massive reversals. And you mentioned mm. foreign policy. Mm. So you end up so you had a situation where the Obama administration entered in, in 2015 into an agreement with Iran. Right. They did it by bypassing Congress. So there was no need to compromise. Mm-hmm. So the Trump administration comes in a couple of years later, gets rid of the agreement again by bypassing Congress. No yeah. compromise. That's a bad way to run a railroad. We, yeah. we lost our allies in the process. Uh, it makes it very hard for other countries to negotiate with us. This kind of it introduces whiplash. And if you're a major power in the world, you want to stand for continuity, for a degree of predictability and consistency. Right. So an unwillingness to compromise, I actually think, can be dangerous. Another obligation you propose is, is being civil and remaining civil with each other. And this does build on the moral codes of all major religious traditions and ethical codes in the world, which have some version of treat others as you would like others to treat you, or sometimes the opposite, which is do not treat others as you would not want them to treat you. But it it does build on something that's fundamental to humanity when we think about ethics and social relationships. And yet we're seeing a lot of the opposite. And for me, the image that came up when I read this section of your book was the school board meetings in the past few years where you see people getting up and just cursing at these uh, leaders, some cases volunteers, uh, elected officials who are trying to do their best for the public good. You may disagree with them on policy, but getting up there and screaming at them and calling them names and not allowing them to respond. And to me, that shows a dark side that if you think you're right, you don't have to listen to the other side. And that's fundamentally different than this obligation you talk about. All too true. And 
it's also just impractical. It makes it very hard to get anything done. But also think about it. You could be disagreeing vehemently at the school board meeting on Tuesday with your neighbor. But on Wednesday, you may want to work with your neighbor on some other issue. Pretty hard if you've been abusive to, to do that. And this is a place where I look to religious authorities to play a role. I, you know, Tens and tens of millions of Americans every week go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. I would argue that religious authorities have the, uh, if you'll pardon the word, obligation to say, hey, mm-hmm. you, uh, you have an obligation to be civil to be respectful, to hear the... Now, there are moments where someone that came up in the course of writing the book, someone said to me, what do you do if someone, you know, if I'm black and someone uses the N-word or something like that, or if you're Jewish and somebody uses some anti-Semitic... It may be in certain situations you've got to walk away, that there's Mm -hmm. no chance of having a a conversation uh, in the face of incivility. Uh, And you had in the civil rights movement, you had you know, nonviolence in the face of, of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where, again, I think religious authorities, uh, the moral leaders of this society have to step up. And our, quite honestly, our political leaders have to model good behavior. And by the way, we as voters, we should penalize those who don't. If people, like the other night at the State of the Union, when people behaved abominably, uh, ultimately they, they behave abominably if they get away with it. It's up to voters. You know, I, I say more than once in the book, we get the government we we deserve, not necessarily the one we need. So mm-hmm. if we are going to not penalize those who model behaviors we would never want our children to, to demonstrate, that's <laughs> on us. And that, that does take a different kind of courage then, doesn't it, to, to face incivility and to respond with modeling behavior. It It's a willingness to be seen as weak to some people because you're not, quote, punching back. But in fact, you're taking the higher ground and you're showing this is the way we can disagree without being disagreeable. It's actually, uh, it actually is fighting back. It's just fighting back in a smarter way. Well, again, uh, it's all that. It, it holds open the opportunity or the possibility of working together on, on other issues. And also it keeps the focus on the issue. If you fight back, then the issue, then the focus turns to the fighting. One of the, the power the power of the argument on nonviolence, whether it was Gandhi or Martin Luther King or whomever, is you you keep the focus on the issue at hand, whether it was British imperialism or racism and discrimination. If you fight back in kind, then suddenly that becomes the issue. That doesn't serve your that doesn't serve mm-hmm. your goals. That does tie into the obligation that you mentioned, which is rejecting violence and specifically political violence. And I got to be honest, uh, this is this is where I'm really worried because you write that if the use of force proves successful in some way, it sets a precedent that others will, will try to emulate it to achieve their goals. And I found myself recently reflecting on uh, 133 BC, which is before either one of us was born, but reading the history of the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. And this is the time when Tiberius Gracchus, there, there was voting going on, and at least they honored the norm of no weapons in the sacred center of the city. But what they did is the mob went in and broke off table legs and used things that were improvised weapons. 
and absolutely brutalized their opponents. Somewhere around 300 people were killed. The precedent that worried me there was it was somewhat celebrated by the political leadership, and they saw this as a good end, and so they did not punish the perpetrators. Well, history shows us what happened uh, in the centuries after that. And I keep coming back to that example, and I can't quite escape it since January 6th, which is until we get full accountability for January 6th, the lesson learned is not that dissimilar from 133 BC in terms of the introduction of political violence. And the question becomes an operational one about how do we do it better rather than a moral one of we can never do that again. Does this worry you as much as it worries me? In a a word, yes. It's the importance that legally those who committed violence be held accountable. And we're seeing that that's happening. A lot of people are going to prison uh, and there's the lead, there's the political side that we want those who right. one way or another were inciting uh, that, you know, incitement legally is a very hard thing to prove, but incitement politically isn't. So we'll see what happens, you know, legally with certain people, including the former president. But to me, politically, it's clear. So that's up to us again, whether we are going to look the other way or hold people responsible or accountable for inciting violence, even if it doesn't necessarily clear the threshold that the uh, that the uh, that the, 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 the courts would have. But just look, I, I spent three years as the envoy to Northern Ireland. I've seen what politically inspired violence does to a society and everything we take for granted. Uh, suddenly we would uh, not be in a position to take it for granted. I, you know, I talked to corporate leaders just earlier today and basically said, you all have to become much more powerful advocates for democracy and the rule of law. How, how old do you think your businesses are going to do if your workers can't get to work or your customers can't get to the shop? Not going to do so well. So why aren't you more firm advocates for yeah. democracy? Why aren't you, why are you contributing to candidates that are sowing the seeds of democratic demise. You need to think twice about that. Your next obligation in your list is valuing norms. And you put a particular emphasis here on political norms. It's not just about observing the the letter of the law, but looking at the spirit of the law, those things which are not enforceable by law, but are just the right thing to do. And you, you put a particular focus on one that, that I've also spent quite a bit of time thinking about, which is the, the basic norm of American democracy that you accept election results. And I, I guess it was always a possibility in my mind that we could have a, a challenged election on false pretenses, but I'm not sure I ever gave it serious thought until recently that, that it could happen because we had so many presidents Um, And I'm thinking here of presidential elections, but it's true of every election. But so many presidents who had real grievances, whether it was Andrew Jackson in 1824 as a candidate or Samuel Tilden in 1876, who had actual grievances and people telling them, we will fight for you. And yet to a person, they stood up and said, nope, the country is more important. And in some recent cases, uh, Al Gore in 2000, who had, had a claim and made, if not his exact words, very close to his words, were country matters more than a partisan issue right now. So we're going to come together and concede the election. Um, this is another one, like the rejection of violence, that I try to resist feeling pessimistic about it. 
But do you think that we can rebuild this culture of valuing norms and, and what will it take from different sectors of the society? One person you left out in your list is Richard Nixon. Absolutely. One of, one of the more excoriated presidents, shall we say, on our history, but even Richard Nixon had certain options after he lost the close election in 1960. There were quote unquote irregularities. I think it's a generous word in, in Illinois. And he wouldn't pursue it. And Nixon, Nixon at the end of the day was a conservative, flawed as he was. He was a conservative in the sense he believed in the system. And now we have people who aren't conservatives. We have Republicans who are radicals. We probably have some people on the left who are radicals as well, who basically put their political agendas or their personal agendas uh, first. So you kind of, this is a conversation, I'll be honest with you, I never thought I'd be having. I'm kind, <laughs> yeah. of, I'm kind of somewhere between depressed and shocked that yeah. we're, we have to have it. But I don't know any recourse. It's not a legal matter. Mm-hmm. It's, it is a moral matter. And it's a political, for those who lack morality or character, then it has to become a political matter that the rest of us have to hold them to account. You'd like to think in a society that norms, that we we self-enforce norms because we have morality and character, what the Greeks would have called virtue. Well, clearly we don't in every case. So then it's up to us. Then it's up to citizens to say, hey, I may agree with this person on this or that, but this is not the kind of person I want to entrust with power or have my kids have to see every day because this is just not somebody I respect. I don't, I don't have any better answer than that. Yeah. The, the, the one that the obligation that builds on that is promoting the common good, which sounds like a platitude. Um, we're all in this together, so let's work, but, but it really isn't. And you point out that it's, it's inherently right. That is, it's good for its own sake ethically. Um, but it also is in one's self-interest to have a society that functions. And I'm trying to figure out how that translates into action that ideally you want people running for office who believe in that. But honestly, I think it's more important for this obligation that it literally is citizens working together at the community level and in non-governmental settings to understand that the common good does rely on all of us to understand that there is a, a commonwealth of all of us. And some people have forgotten that because of the very isolated media and other things that you've, you've mentioned. Um, this is perhaps the hardest question, but how do you regenerate that feeling of the common good when we are so divided, um, in the media atmosphere and elsewhere? I can only think of two things. One is the self-interest argument. We just had a test case during the pandemic that an individual's, uh, willingness or unwillingness to get vaccinated, just to use one example, had implications for public health or, in the case of guns, your quote unquote right to acquire an AR-15, shall we say, conflicts with the larger right of your fellow citizen to a degree of public safety. And the question is, how do we balance the two? So I think you know, there's a question of can we devise laws, have court rulings and the rest that, that try to balance that individual rights versus common good. And then again, I come to to religious leaders. If there's anything in this book that is, shall we say, to be found in the scriptures, this is it. We are our brother's keeper or our sister's keeper. That life is about more than simply what's good for me, or if you will, selfishness. And so again, there, I think there is a, 
a mutual self-interest argument, but I'm not talking about that right now. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a, a moral character dimension here. And the last I checked, religious leaders, that's the business they're in. I thought they're in the business of encouraging morality and character and, and virtue, and they ought to step up to it. Another obligation is respecting government service. And this one, of course, I think many of these obligations overlap. And and this one, in order to respect government service, you, you have to have some of these other elements that you've you've talked about. But I think part of it is a sense of scale is most people don't know just how many people do work for the government that we have somewhere, I think, between nine and 10 million people who work for the federal government and many more than that working at the state, local, tribal government levels. Uh, that, that, that's a lot of Americans doing the jobs that we need done, doing the jobs that provide the things that we say we want. And yet, if you don't respect the people doing them, that, that goes down a, a vortex pretty quickly into a, a negative dynamic. Um, respecting government service seems to have the flip side too, of you want people who are respectable entering government service. How do you motivate the best people to go into government with all of the pitfalls that do come with it these days? Again, you're right. Government is us. It's what, 20, 25 million people. If you add up everybody who's associated with it, people in uniform, the military is only a small percentage of that. So government is not the other government's us and government touches every aspect of our lives, you know, whether it's entitlements, you know, social security, Medicare, public safety, fire, medical, whatever schools. So again, it's, you want government to be good. You should want the best of the brightest to choose that career. Now there's obviously limits to the financial incentives. Government's never going to compete with Goldman Sachs, but you want talented people to have a stint in government, maybe a career, maybe a stint. One way is to show them some respect. Uh, that's not a, a, a bad way. You want government to be flexible and you know, willingness to take people for shorter time. I'm a great believer in national service. Give people a taste of government. Give them a great experience. Has the added benefit, not only would individuals get better trained, but it would bring people together who normally would never come together. Uh, it creates a little bit of community in this country, which has very little community, very little common experience. We're so separated now by education and geography and wealth uh, and race and what have you. So I think breaking down some of these barriers, you're good. But again, you know, it's like a lot of our conversation. There's a, a normative access aspect, but then there's a self-interest thing. We, since we're affected by government, why in the world wouldn't we want the best and brightest to go into it? We want to encourage uh, talent there because they're going to be making decisions. They're going to affect our lives. Ideally, those would be good decisions. Well, we've we've talked about your ninth obligation already, which is the importance of civics education. Sure. But I, I do think that addressing the civics deficit does pair well with your tenth uh, obligation which is putting country first. Um, Those two are are really inherently linked. And I find that when I was reviewing the the powerful norm of accepting the results of a presidential election, um, I found that these are exactly the words that so many losing presidential candidates lose, even after those tough, close elections, when some people are saying we need to fight this, that they will use, I'm putting the country first. Uh, some things matter more than partisanship. So that idea is out there that the country matters more than 
the party. Um, the numbers aren't with us, Richard. We're, we're seeing a lot of polling <laughs> data that shows that if you put an R or a D after your name, that that matters to people more than what you're saying about the country. And and again, I'm not trying to be negative here, but wow, this is an obligation that we nod and say, of course, that makes sense. But there are a whole lot of Americans who disagree with us on this very point right now. Yeah, we've had those, some interesting recent demonstrations of it. Liz Cheney, I would argue, whatever you think of her policy, showed tremendous character. She put country first. She paid a political price for it and was willing to pay that price. You saw these secretaries of state around the country often firmly entrenched in one party, but still stood by the process, realized there was something larger than their own immediate uh, political preference. And some of them were removed from office. Many of them, I was glad to see, got reelected this time. A lot of them stood up to physical threats. To me, that was really America at its, at its best. So all we can do is encourage it, reward it when we see it, penalize it when we don't. And you know, I got... I keep coming back to there's so many ways in which we as citizens uh, can can make a difference here. You know, one of my favorite lines or observations is that pol- politicians are not uh, always uh, responsible, but they are always responsive. Mm. So we have got to create a reward system, a reward structure, mm-hmm. where people who behave abominably get thrown out of office. And those who behave, those who behave well uh, will vote for them. And, and we have seen that in the, the last midterm election. You saw people campaigning across party lines for people who were putting country first. So yeah, the, the seeds are certainly there. Um, these are 10 obligations, but of course you've mentioned and we briefly talked about the fact that there, there certainly could be more. In your discussions about these so far, what are two or three other obligations that people have said also belong on this this top list, things that, you know, if you were writing a longer version of this book, you might consider including. What else are you hearing from people about obligations they think are important? So now my answer is going to surprise you. I haven't heard one yet. And I've been out on the road for a month. I've so done, you found the right 10. Either that or people, I don't know. Uh, so far, at least, I've, I haven't had anyone say, what about 11 and 12? Yeah. I haven't had anyone say, boy, number six is terrible, whatever. Huh. What I have had people say, and it's really interesting, it's a version of what you're saying, David, hmm. is they're discouraged and right. they're worried about it. And the one, for example, that's most, probably the issue that's raised most is about number nine, which is uh, support the teaching of civics. They say, yeah. look at how education is getting politicized or even weaponized in our country. Right. How are you possibly going to do that? Or... Yeah, you say people ought to get informed, but what about this social media or that? Anyhow, so what I'm getting is pushback, not on the desirability. I'd say it's more on the feasibility. Okay. And I say, look, if it were easy, I wouldn't have bothered writing the book. You know, I could have focused on my golf game or something. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. And I wrote it because it isn't easy, but it's important. But but so far, at least for better and for worse, I haven't told, I haven't heard that I'm wrong in what I include or don't. It's more that uh, people are are worried that what I'm calling for, that the, the politics won't allow it to happen. 
Well, I'm going to put one out there and, and I'm not sure it's a separate obligation because I do like many of these, I think it is a reinforcing, it's almost like a, a, a quilt here that they, that they've tied into each other and help. But I'm thinking it's one about delayed gratification that especially when it comes to political and social ideas, mm-hmm. um, everybody's in a race to get what they want right now. So it, it's strongly built in with the compromise element. It's strongly built in with the country first element. But the idea of you don't have to give up on something you want just because you're not getting it right now. There is actually virtue in delaying gratification for some policy option you want in order to build the foundation for cooperation in order to reinforce these other obligations. And maybe it's because, you know, I have a a young child at home and delayed gratification is certainly on our mind all the time right now. How's that going, Dad? (laughs) It's going really well until it isn't. And, and, And then it's a disaster. But it sure seems to me that a whole lot of people politically could remind themselves that Delayed gratification doesn't mean giving up on what you want. It means treasuring it more when you've earned it. I don't disagree. And I I think, as you suggested, it's implicit in a lot of these. Uh, I actually cite Reagan in one place. I think you mentioned it yourself when we were talking about the third obligation about compromise, that Reagan made a very strong case for taking 20 percent or 50 percent often to get something started. But don't don't demand all or nothing or you'll end up with with nothing. So I think there's that. That's a powerful uh, argument uh, to me. And a lot of these are about thinking about the larger good. Yeah. Uh, so if uh, if you're willing to embrace the notion of the common good or something like that, it, it, it means that, OK, I'm not going to demand everything that I want right now or I'm going to I'm going to bring down the temple. And so a lot of this is, uh, again, about comes down to the last one about putting the country first, yeah. what I what we used to teach called thinking institutionally, keep mm-hmm. in mind the larger objectives here. Mm-hmm. And if it means taking half a loaf, if it means, as you put it, delaying, accepting the fact this ain't going to happen now, but maybe will happen in part in a couple of years, if in agreeing to that and signing up to that, you protect and something larger, that's probably worth it. And I, and I didn't want to skip over the point you made about the fact that the, the challenge you get from many people is that these are just so difficult to do and that we can't let that become cynicism about the ability mm-hmm. to do it. It reminds me a bit of Kennedy's words. I want to say it was at Rice University, but his speech on the, the space effort when he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade, um, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And I, and I feel like that applies to the Bill of Obligations too. We, we choose to improve ourselves in these obligations, not not because it's easy to do, but just for the very reason that they're hard, we have to focus on that. Thank you for saying that. And it's it's right. It's hard, but it's valuable. And again, I'm sorry I felt the need to put it out there. I would have, <laughs> yeah. You know, the again, this is just not something I ever would have. Ten years ago, if we had run into each other, this is not a conversation we would no. have had. And uh, but it is hard. And but I'm not. Yeah. Look, you you've been in government. I've been in government. My biggest takeaway from you know, having now spent, I was first, you know, I've been in public life for off and on for 50 years, is that almost nothing is inevitable. And that applies for better and for worse. Good things don't happen because they should. Bad things don't happen, just don't happen. People make decisions or people execute those decisions in certain ways. 
So from that, I take a little bit of solace. I take a little bit of optimism that there's nothing that's baked into the cake about the future of American democracy that, that can't be changed for the better. So I wrote this out of concern. Uh, I wrote this out of worry, but I, I did write this ultimately to start a conversation that leads to action that I hope addresses uh, a lot of what's wrong. And I believe canon should be shack canon should be addressed. Well, let's close out our conversation by reaching into our chatterbox and pulling out a uh, question may or may not be related to what we've spoken about. Recommend any recent book you've read, podcast you've listened to, or TV show you've watched. <laughs> I don't read a lot of books these days because one, when you write a book or promote a book, you're too busy. Plus in my job, I have to constantly read would-be books. One of my principal, one of my responsibilities is I read book-length manuscripts. Right, right. So uh, the chance of fun reading, shall we say, is, uh, <laughs> is uh, finite. I do listen to a lot of podcast. Oh, but I am going to mention a TV show. Uh, Netflix recently launched uh, an eight-part show. Uh, all eight parts are available called Full Swing. It's about uh, golf, but it's not about golf. It's about the PGA Tour. And each of the eight episodes is about oh. two golfers, about uh -huh. how they're dealing with their situations and huh. professionally and personally. It, you don't have to like golf to like this show. It is a very human depiction of life in this glamorous world, which is actually quite hard and quite lonely and quite difficult. And it turns a lot of these golfers into head cases. Mm. And what you quickly realize, the mm. difference is almost never physical. And right. virtually everyone, the difference is mental and emotional. Mm. And as a result, I find that uh, I flew back from Munich. I was there at the security conference the other day. And instead of doing all the work I was carrying with me, including one of these unread book manuscripts, <laughs> instead, it was I was full swing all the time. It was full swing all the time. It was, uh, it got me through about six hours of flying and it's, uh, I thought it was fantastic. Well, I also found fantastic the, the book, the bill of obligations, the 10 habits of good citizens. Uh, thank you for writing it. I like you. I'm sorry that you had to write it both because of uh, what what prompted it, but also the opportunity cost of uh, not having another book on foreign policy to read from you. I hope that's still in the offing next. But I appreciate your discussion on all of these topics. And thanks for joining me on Chatter. David, you're a good and generous and wise man. Thank you, sir. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.